Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Let's get into the Word. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16. I want to look at one of the most uh, what's it, controversial passages of all of Scripture. There's a lot of debate about this. It's also one of the most important passages. And it, in it, Jesus introduces a subject that we put a lot more emphasis on than he did, but we have the wrong definition of it. We talk about this subject more than Jesus did, yet we understand the significance and the importance of this subject much less than he did. Jesus, we talk about it more. He understood more of the importance. So let's go ahead and read in in, uh, verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It's a a fascinating passage, especially that he, he closes with that, now don't tell anybody. We think of that as one of our primary primary responsibilities, but Jesus was wanting to go undercover because he had he had some work to do before. Uh, this thing would launch into full gear. It goes on in this same passage that right after this was when Jesus began to talk about how he must suffer. So this was a transition point in Jesus' ministry. Up until that point, he didn't talk a lot about his suffering. He didn't talk about uh, how he was going to be crucified. It wasn't until he had settled it in the hearts of his disciples that he was the Messiah. Now, back in 08, we, when, when we were during the, we, we had an outpouring here in 08, and, and following that time, we really went deep into the whole subject of identity. It was just something that the Lord was really emphasizing to us, and this was one of the primary passages we looked at, because Jesus asks his disciples a couple of questions. He said, first, what's the rumor mill? Who do people say that I am? He wanted to know what, he wanted to know what people were saying about him. He said, who, what do people say? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. They, there was a lot of different swirling rumors, people talking about who he might be. And then he, he circles back around and he gets down to what's really important. He said, doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. He says, who do you say that I am? And with that, Peter being the the vocal one, he speaks up and he said, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He said, you know this by revelation. This isn't something you thought yourself into. This isn't your own good idea, something that you extrapolated out in your mind. There was a revelation from God to give you that kind of insight. And then as soon as he validates what Peter said, he then says, you are Peter. And the word Peter literally means rock. It's, his name was Simon Peter, but Jesus began to call him by a second name, Peter, and emphasize this idea of him being a rock. The name Simon means to hear or be heard. But Jesus began to emphasize that element of his character, you are a rock. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. And so we talked during that season where we're talking about identity so much that the two most important things about every one of us is these two things, your theology and your identity, your perspective of God and your perspective of yourself, how you view God and how you view you. And the foundation of everything you do is really flows out of those two roots. It wasn't until after he established that he said, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Because God cannot entrust the keys to those who don't know their identity and know their theology. Because if you don't know, have good theology and you don't understand your identity, you're going to be dangerous. You're going to release the resources on the wrong things. God, God's not out to validate wrong theology or to back wrong identity. Those two things are crucial for us to walk in. And so that hasn't changed. That, that is a constant in the kingdom. We need to know who God is and who we are. The most important thing about us, the most important question you will ever ask, and the most important question you will ever answer is the question, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question we ask God, and the most important question God asks us. And your answer to those two questions literally determine your eternal destiny. But they also determine your effectiveness in time. The effectiveness of your life is contingent upon you getting the right answer to those two questions. But that is not what we're talking about this morning. I just, I just love that subject. And it's so important. We've got to keep hold of that. Out of that, he says, on, on the, he says, Peter, you are a rock. And literally, Cephas has the idea of a smaller rock than the word rock he uses on this rock. And that's where I say this is one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. There's been a you know, centuries-old debate. Uh, Catholics like to point to the fact that Jesus was saying, you are a rock and I'm this rock. And it's a, it's a play on words. And there's no doubt that Jesus was intentionally playing on that, that idea and saying, on this rock. Matter of fact, I, I believe that it was even a reference not only to Peter's name, but it was a, a reference to Peter's calling. Uh, you know, Ephesians says that God will, that, that the church is built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And Peter was a foundation stone. He wasn't the cornerstone, of course that's Jesus, but he was a foundation stone. And one of the foundation stones of the church is that tremendous gift of apostolic, prophetic, pastoral, evangelistic, teaching ministry, those things are crucial. And I believe there's even a sense in which Jesus was calling attention, not to even, not just Peter's personal identity, but his calling. God was, Jesus was shaping who he was. I believe it was also a reference to his declaration, the revelation that he received. The church is built on revelation. And the fact is your Christian life 
is built on revelation. It's not you being an insightful individual. If it was, I'd have been, uh, you know, I'd have, I'd have been uh, pushed out of this deal a long time ago. It's not about that. It's about revelation from God. And we position ourselves and God leads us on through revelation. And the way to grow, you got to know in order to grow. And the way that you grow in God, Peter put it this way, grace and peace be unto you through your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to grow in God, you've got to know more about Him. Those two things go hand in hand. Now you can know more and not grow, but you can't grow and not know. Knowing doesn't act always equal growing, but growing will always include knowing. If you really want to grow in God, you've got to grow in your understanding of His Word. I made an allusion to Caleb and Claudia. I just love... Uh, you know, they're two educated individuals. I mean, they, they got, they've been, you know, they're educated. Uh, they, they both have master's degrees and have really given themselves to the study of the word. And I love that. I love to see people who give themselves to the deep study of the word, to the academic realm, who are, st- are also open to the spirit. It's not an either or thing. It's a both end. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And we don't have to be people that are, are down on theology. Your theology is the most important thing about you. But that doesn't negate the fact that we can be open to the subjective experiences of the Spirit that are, that are rooted in the objective reality of the Word. And we need both, and we need to be people of both. Now, not every one of us are going to go out and get degrees, but the fact is, we all need to be people who are rooted in the Word and in the Spirit. And so we need our theology. We need, we, and, and theology really does come by revelation. You're never going to really know the book without God giving you insight into it. That's why we see all through the Bible, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God's not going to get on your case, James said. That's a modern translation. God's not going to get on your case. Seek for wisdom. Cry out for understanding. Search for it as hidden treasure. He gives us the spirit that will lead us into all truth. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. Those of you that have been in the the class on on Wednesday nights, Paul prays these two things in, in his prayer at the end of Ephesians 1. I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, the way to know Him is a spirit of wisdom and revelation needs to come upon us. Now, we talked in that class, the jury's out. Scholars disagree. Some translations have a little S on spirit, some a big S. Is is that the Holy Spirit that He said would lead us into all truth? Or is that angelic aid where the spirit that our messengers help us along in this path? I would think yes. It's, I, I believe there's, there's a, an inclusion of both, that when we ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, whether it's primarily speaking of the Holy Spirit, there are, there's angelic aid involved, and if it's primarily speaking of the angels, there's, there's the spirit of God that comes on us, but the fact is, we need revelation. He goes on to pray, the very next thing out of his, out of his mouth, or his pen, is that we, the, the eyes of our, high, eyes, eyes rather, of our heart would be enlightened in the knowledge of Him. Paul, conversely, later on in the book, he talks about the darkening of our understanding. So you can have a darkened understanding that makes it very hard for you to see things in the book. Or you can have an enlightened mind and we're to go from glory to glory. And part of that is God giving us greater and greater light over time. 
And so we need to pray that. We need to partner with what Paul is saying. It's a good prayer. It's a scriptural prayer. And it's a great prayer for us to pray over ourselves. That God would enlighten our eyes. That we would see things in the word. That we would be able to see what he's saying. And I don't believe that's just relegated to the word. That's also, that's also this perception. That the word literally means... It has the idea of when you say, oh, I see what, you're me- what you mean, or I see what you're saying. It's not just, it's not literally a physical thing. It's mentally you have the picture, you grasp what's going on. And we can have that in about spiritual things. It's our spiritual eyes. So just as Justin Calise came down here and he said, this is what I sensed. And what John Lemick shared this morning, what I sensed this morning, what I was sensing, those are our spiritual senses, we, we become attuned to the spiritual realm. That's what Paul is praying. And we need that. But all of that comes by revelation. And we need to lend ourselves to that. And I believe that is also what Jesus is talking about here on this rock. But he's also, and, and I believe it's, it's undeniable, he is also referring to this, this rock behind him, this mountain in Caesarea Philippi that was... The, the headquarters of a very place called the Gates of Hell, the Gates of Hades. It was a, a monument to the, the god Pan, and uh, Pan was a goat-like figure. There was a, a grotesque uh, sexual uh, statue of Pan with a bunch of little nymphs dr- dancing around him uh, in this city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a demon-infested uh, pagan city. But yet Jesus went out of his way, some 60 miles out of his way, took his disciples up there to go through this city. It would be like going out of your way as a preacher to take your ministry school to go to Vegas and go to the worst nightclub you could in Vegas to make a declaration. This was, if you hung around long enough, there was, a, there was the mouth of a cave that, they, that, that had a, a pool in it and they believed it was the, the, the door to the abyss. That's what it was known as, as the gate of hell. Now, you know, historians look back and think, oh, isn't that, isn't that cute? Because that, that was just those people in that day and age. And they were a little more ignorant than we, we understand now in our scientific age that, that that's not real. But you and I know better. There are openings in the spirit. Just as Caleb and Claudia this morning alluded to an open heaven. There's, there's places that... There's contention for those areas. And we can establish a Genesis 28 open heaven where the ladder is set up and it's the angels ascend and descend. And there's, uh, if you've ever been in a place in revival, I'll never forget the first time I walked into Brownsville Assembly of God back in the 90s. I began to hear about this revival and when I went, it was before you had to wait in line for 12 hours and to get in. I, I just walked in and I was like, oh my goodness, it was it was charged with activity. And it was like you could hear so clear. It, it, it was, it, there was just an openness in the spirit. Why? Because something had been achieved. They gained air supremacy in the spirit. There was a transfer of the gates. The gate of hell became the gate of heaven. And so something had been transferred there. And there was an openness in the spirit. The enemy had been crippled and displaced over that church at that time. The, con- the, converse, the converse was true of this place, Caesarea Philippi. It was a pagan stronghold. It was very demonic. If you were to hang out in front of the, the mouth of that cave, you would have saw, 
you know, sick sexual perversion going on as, as uh, worship to Pan and all of this garbage going on. And yet Jesus goes out of his way and he says, guys, I got a lesson for you. But it wasn't good enough just to preach it and say, hey, you know that city? He wanted to take them there right in front of the mouth of that cave and make the declaration. On this rock, right in the mouth of hell. It's almost as if he opened hell's jaws and yelled down its throat. On this rock, I will build my church and these jaws shall not prevail against it. We need to understand when he says the gates of hell, a lot of times, I know many of you are aware of this, but a lot of times when people quote that, they look at it as if the church will be able to fight off the, the, uh, the aggression of the enemy and we're gonna, the gates of hell won't prevail because we're in this defensive mode and we're strong enough to hold back hell. That's not what it's saying. Jesus went to hell. He went to the gate of hell. It was the kingdom of God on the offensive and he was speaking from heaven to hell and saying, your vomit stops here. We're going to, we're, we're declaring war on hell and God, Jesus was launching heaven's initiative. It was heaven on the offense and hell on the defense and he was telling them, listen, your gates will not hold back heaven's invasion. He marched them into this grotesque, dark, demonically infested, blatant, I mean, you, you read some, I wouldn't talk about it in mixed company. You, you read even, even some of the statues that, that were there and it, just what was there. And Jesus goes right in the middle of it and makes a declaration. He was throwing down the gauntlet, staking the claim for the kingdom. He was launching his invasion. And what did he say when he made that declaration? I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We talk a lot about the church in the 20th century. But very little is talked overtly about that specific term in the New Testament. A much more common term in the New Testament is basilia, or kingdom. The word ecclesia is what we translate church. And it's really an unfortunate translation. And there were political reasons why it was translated church and not how it should have been translated. And we'll look at that in a moment. But we have these two terms, these two kingdom entities, if you will, Basilea and Ecclesia, the church and the kingdom. And in modern day Christianity, the emphasis has been on the Ecclesia and a minor on the Basilea. And I'm telling you that you are in a season right now, God has chosen that you would be born and live in a season where that is shifting. And the emphasis is turning from the Ecclesia, the church, and is the light is being shined on the Basilea. Because God is reestablishing an emphasis and an understanding of the kingdom. And it's crucial that this happens. Remember back in 08 when Jack Taylor came here for the first time, he preached a simple message on the kingdom of God and it rocked my world. And what it did, it, it recalibrated all my theology. Now I've, I've been a student of the word and a, and a voracious leader for many, many years, 
But I never understood some of the the most simple truths that he said. It wasn't anything I never heard before. It was just things I never grasped before until Jack said them. And one of the things he said was this. All of the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdom is in the church. The church is merely a subsidiary of the kingdom. That rocked my world. Because when Jack said that, it's as if God gave me a bigger theological box. I had this little box, it was called the ecclesia, it was the church. And I tried to fit all my theology in it. And like any good man, you know how men are on on Christmas Eve, you're trying to put something together for your kids, but you don't look at the instructions because men don't do that. We don't look at maps and we don't look at instructions. That's women's stuff, you know, we're too cool for that. And so we put it together and then we have parts left over. And we're thinking, uh uh-oh. And that's about the time we get the the owner's manual out. Well, there were things that the Lord had spoken to me about over decades that didn't fit in my theological box. I knew the Lord spoke them to me. I saw them in the Word. I just didn't see how they fit with what my theological framework had created. It was this concept where everything circled around the church. I had a church-centric theology. The church was God's creation. The church was what, that's how God's going to operate. That's what he does. And inadvertently, unbeknownst to me, I had made the church and the, and the kingdom, or the ecclesia and the basilia, one. I made them synonymous. And in so doing, initially, the church became more than it was intended to be. Because the church is not the kingdom. It's merely a subsidiary of the kingdom. But it it first became more than it was intended to be, but ultimately it became so much less than it was intended to be because in, in losing my understanding of the kingdom, I unplugged the church from its source. Like I had a really fancy toaster, but no electricity. It was a good place to store your bread, but you couldn't cook it. The church receives its authority and its power from the kingdom. And so we need to understand that God is shining a light. There's a reason that we hear so much teaching on the kingdom. It's not just because, oh, someone wrote a best-selling book, so everybody's trying to get on board. This is a God thing. There's a principle in the book of Revelation. We see it repeated. Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit would say to the church. Literally, it says church is, plural. Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. If you want to know what is on the heart of God, what is the now word, what is is the prophetic emphasis? We got the knowledge of God, the overarching, full, full, uh, you know, the fullness of God, the, the book, but then we have the prophetic now of God. What is God emphasizing? You can find that when you begin to tune your ear. What is God speaking to the churches? And this theme of the kingdom is being spoken about in different movements, different streams, different, different authors, different people are talking about it because it's on the heart of God. And being a prophetic church, i got a little story to tell you. You know, you know I'd go there. Uh, out at, uh, Bill Johnson talks about back in, I, I want to say it was about 2005, if I'm not mistaken, they had a young guy that was a janitor in their church. And uh, he was a weird little prophetic dude. Uh, he, he was strange. As a matter of fact, a lot of the, the supernatural stories that Bill would talk about in the early days 
was this young janitor, God using him powerfully. He was very prophetic, and he would, the Lord would speak things to him, and he would tell Bill, hey, the Lord told me this, and then Bill would hear about him on the news a few days later. And it really began to, Bill began to re- recognize, hey, there's a track record to this young man's life. He, one time he came to Bill and he said, the Lord took me up in a vision, and he showed me that the Chinese leaders are going to make these changes in international policy, and he named like three of them. A couple days later, CNN began to report this shift in J- Chinese policy that was unexpected. And so it kind of caught Bill's attention, and he began to, uh, you know, be, give a little more attention to what this young man said. Well, this young man came to him one day and said, Bill, he said, I had a vision, and he said, I saw a door pound something. I, I saw this door, and I saw a hand pound a document on the door, and the Lord spoke to me and said, this is the Wittenberg door, and this is Martin Luther, Luther's 95 Theses. He said, Martin was a Reformation man, and he lived in a Reformation generation. And he said, the message of his generation was salvation by faith. He said, you too live in a Reformation generation. And the message of your generation will be the kingdom of God. And he said, as a sign to you, there's going to be a comet coming by planet Earth that the astronomers do not know about. He told Bill, and Bill thought, well, that's interesting. A couple days later, sure enough, on the news, we've just discovered a comet. It's going to be coming close to Earth. The astronomers knew nothing about it, so they called him back in, listened to what he said. They did a study on this comet. They found the last time it came by planet Earth was in the day, the time when Martin Luther walked the Earth. It was a sign in the heaven above. It was something God was emphasizing. Why does God do that? There are times where God will give signs in the heavens. He'll do something that no man can manipulate. Because it's something so crucial on his prophetic agenda. There's something that God wants to emphasize and establish in his church. And God is emphasizing and establishing this understanding of the kingdom of God. It's the rule of God. It's not the realm of God. It's the rule of God which makes renegade realms his realm. It's the authority of heaven. It's the rule of heaven. It's the Basilea. Jesus came to bring his kingdom with him. He came to take a renegade planet and a renegade race of men and bring them back under the rule of his father, the king. That's what the kingdom is about. One of the ways in which he was going to accomplish this was in, we see in this passage, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to establish my ecclesia. The word we translate ecclesia, we translate as church uh, for an unfortunate reason. Really, William Tyndale was like the father of the English Bible, okay? He was, he was, like, he was to the English-speaking people what Martin Luther was to the German-speaking people. He gave the, the scriptures to the common man. What William Tyndale, the word he used, the English word to translate this word ecclesia, he used the word assembly. And that was an accurate translation. Matter of fact, we see this word used not in association with the church, but in association with an assembly of people in Acts 19, where there was the riot. Remember where, where uh, the, 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 the metalsmiths that were making uh, little statues to the goddess Diana, and there was a dent in there. Literally, the economy of this city that was built on the worship of Diana was shook to its foundations because there was such revival, people weren't buying the idols like they used to. 
And so it affected the economy, which was built on paganism. And so a riot ensued, and they brought the people into this, this meeting, this you know, open-air uh, area, and they, there was a riot, and the, the proconsul came and lifted his hands. He said, stop, stop. We, you know, we're, we're in danger of having an illegal ecclesia, an illegal assembly. That is literally what that word means. So why do we translate it, this nebulous word, church, that has taken on other meanings? Now, all of us know, I, I'm, I would be shocked if there, wasn't some, if there was someone in this room that would think that a church is, refers to a building rather than a group of people. But, you know, even though we know that, we still associate it with a certain gathering, a certain way in which people gather, and it really undermines the impact of what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia. What was an ecclesia? An ecclesia was a body of people gathered with authority. And they were, matter of fact, the, uh, Caesar had, he established ecclesias. They were literally people that would legislate law and they would, they would hear his heart and then they were infused with authority where they would establish laws and they would figure out, they would strategize, how are we going to carry out these laws that reflect the heart of the emperor? That's an ecclesia. It had the idea of, matter of fact, there was a, uh, let me read the word here. It was a... There was a certain type of gathering called a conventus civium romanorum. Say that three times. Conventus civium romanorum, or they'd call it a conventus for short. And according to Sir William Ramsey... When a group of Roman citizens as small as two or three gathered anywhere in the world, it constituted the conventus as the local expression of Rome. Does that remind you of a verse? Let me read to you again. That when a group of Roman citizens as small as two or three, anywhere in the globe, when they gathered as Roman citizens, then that... That, was, that constituted a conventus as a local expression of Rome. And therefore, they had the authority and backing of the emperor in their gathering. So when Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was a word already clearly defined in this Romanistic world. But to us, we lose the meaning. And we think of it as a building where we have religious services. Or the gathering of the saints for a Sunday weekend meeting. And although this does constitute the ecclesia, it's not limited to this. And that's the important thing for you and I to realize. That you and I... Whenever we gather together in His name, we are, we are establishing an expression of the ecclesia. And we have the backing and the authority of the emperor, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Just like Caesar, 
who he was known as the king of kings. He was the emperor. He would install kings all over his empire to rule over subsections. They were, they were subservient kings to him. And then that way he would rule over his empire. And often, but not always, he would install family members, just like royal families have done all through human history. So they, you were born into royalty and you had the right to rule either, either, either through marriage or through birth. So you were born into it or you married into it and you became royal and you had, then you had royal authority. All of this speaks to our experience as kingdom subjects. You and I were both born into it. You were born into royalty. You are born again. You have the seed of God within you. And so you are a royal nation of priests. We are a royal priesthood. We're a kingly fraternity of priests that have royal authority. But we also married into this thing by being the bride of Christ. And that gives us authority. And in so we, we, we co-rule with Him. That's why Ephesians says we are, we, we are seated with Him in heavenly realms. He's seated on the throne and we are seated with Him. Prior to that in Ephesians, Paul says, he talks about all authority being underneath him. And he's seated on that throne at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, you are seated with him. That all speaks to our authority as the ecclesia. And so we need to understand the purpose of the ecclesia was that we have legislative authority. Now what did Jesus say? He told Peter, he said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. So first Jesus calls attention to this revelation. And then he talks about establishing the ecclesia, the authoritative authoritative body, of the legislative body of the kingdom. So he talks about revelation, and then he alludes to this legislation. And this would result in the gates of hell not prevailing against him. Jesus went to a physical location on earth that was a stronghold of evil. It it was a stronghold. It It was literally a mouth or an entry point for hell to attack. Those of us who are charismatic believers tend to have more of a grid work or maybe be more open to the fact that There are spiritual entry points in the earth. There are places that are overtly evil. Geographically, they are concentration places of evil. And there are other places that are concentration places of blessing and good. We refer to them as open heavens. Genesis 28 refers to that. The first time we see that term, Jacob stumbles into a place and unbeknownst to him, his grandfather had made sacrifices at this place before and opened something up in the spirit Jacob could enjoy but not understand because he didn't know his grandfather had paid a price for what he was laying under. The same is true for darkness. There are things that happen in places that open, that become lightning rods, become openings for evil. And rather than surrender to that and Jesus to say, well, we have our places and you have yours. We have, we have Bethel's and they have their Caesarea Philippi's. No. Jesus goes and he, he comes directly to a place that is known as a gate of hell. 
And we know that there was an, at least in some sense, that literally was a gate of hell. It was an entry point because of the human sacrifice, the tremendous perversion that was going on there. And Jesus establishes his claim right there. And what is the vehicle through which he's going to do that? Through gathering two or three in his name. And he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We need to understand that our our responsibility as the church, it's not about us buying buildings and getting a website and then getting people, getting more and more people to sit in a chair on Sunday morning so that we have church growth. I mean, that's all fine. That's good. But if that's the end zone, we have failed. We haven't really affected the city or the region in which we live. The real goal here is that we are translated not into the church, but into the kingdom of His dear Son. We're from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And then we find those fellow believers that we are to run with, that are part of our tribe, that, are part, that, that share a same sense of calling as us. And we gather with them. We don't, we don't uh, isolate that to a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And we realize that when we get together over coffee on a Tuesday morning, that the body of Christ has convened with the authority of heaven right there. And that we can, we can begin to legislate heaven's edicts from that place. Because the body of Christ, the ecclesia, has been established there. There's an interesting little verse that we're going to get to Wednesday night, but I can't help myself. Let's turn there. Let's, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this little verse here at the end of chapter 1. It's his closing of this praise and prayer that he gets into. Look at verse 22. He's talking about the authority that we have in him. And then verse 22, I like how the King James Version says it's, that power is us word. I don't even know that was a word, but you type it in. It, won't, it will not autocorrect you. Us word is a word. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That is the end zone. The body, or the church, is his body. It is the living, breathing expression of him on the earth. He is the head, we are his body, and we are the expression. And out of that, Paul, whenever Paul talks about the body, he, he alludes to it in chapter 1. He's going to get into it in chapter 4. There's two other passages where Paul talks about the body, and that is Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And some of you already know the context of those passages. Each one is talking about spiritual gifts. Why? Why is it that Paul talks about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ simultaneously. Because your membership in the body is defined by your gift. Your function in the body, your membership, what, what role you play. Are you a finger or a toe? Are you an earlobe or a knuckle? Or a knucklehead? What, you know, what, whatever you are is defined by the portion of the body that you function in. It's defined by your spiritual gift. A spiritual, your, your, your body, 
My finger is defined as a finger by two things. It's connection and it's function. Where does it connect? It connects at my hand. And it also has a function. Now, there are people who grow out fingers out of their arm because they've had a birth defect. And it is called a finger, but it's not a normal finger. A normal functioning figure, finger is going to be defined by its function and its connection. And your role in the body of Christ is defined by two things. Where do you connect and how do you function? And if you're not connected, you can't function. Because a, a finger in a bucket doesn't do us any good. Your finger needs to be connected to the body to function in the way it needs to function. And so this thing of being connected relationally in the body of Christ. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. And if you want to, be, you want to take your role in this process of revelation, legislation, implementation, where this thing called the kingdom of God lands in our region and makes a difference, if you want to do that, you've got to connect with the body. You've got to realize part of your identity is this is how I function. It's, it, it, that's not your primary identity, but it feeds into your identity. And if you try to jump, that's, that's like step three of your identity. And the foundation is who are you through his eyes. If you try to jump, if you don't get that nailed down, you try to jump to number three, you're trying to build your identity on your ministry and you're never able to sustain it. But the fact is, part of your identity is your calling. But it's laid over the foundation of who you are in Him and who you are to Him. And what He says about you is the only thing that really matters. Let God be true and every man a liar. And once that's settled, then God begins to add to that your function in the body. You're connecting with other believers. And that's why He says, the body is the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. The church is the fullness of God. You are a partial expression of Christ. Only together with other believers do we come into the fullness of Christ. That is why Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of him. What in the world does he mean by that? We know theologically God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. David said, I I couldn't get away from you in hell. Everywhere I go, you're there. So what does he mean that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them? What he's saying is there is an an added dimension of who he is, a revelation of his person and his power that he will commit to the body convening that he doesn't commit to the individual. And he gets into this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we each have been given a measure of the gift of Christ, is literally how the language says it. You have been given a measure, it's kind of a weird language. You have been given a measure of Christ. It's like a puzzle piece. This morning we got the whole puzzle. We got a picture of Jesus sitting here. But what, before we got here, we each had a picture, we had a piece. One had an earlobe, one had an eyelash. We got a measure of the gift of Christ. There's a unique expression that I bring to the table, but it's not the fullness. It's only a partial. It's a valuable thing. It's an essential thing. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul, or in Romans 12, he says, no, it's 1 Corinthians 12. He, he, he says, he talks about our value. D- don't diminish your value when he talks about the gifts. Everybody's important. As a matter of fact, some, some members of the body are given special honor. There's whole garment industry 
that's dedicated to those parts of the body. It's called underwear or unmentionables. And here I am mentioning it. Unmentionables. It's th- those parts of the body are given special honor. Paul's saying, listen, if you're, not, if you're not up front, one of the talkers, don't diminish your value. If you're hidden, there's a special honor given to that. Don't think of yourself less than you ought. But Romans 12, he says, don't think of yourself more than you ought. <laughs> realize you have a valuable piece, but realize it's only a piece. And only when we bring our pieces together do we have the fullness Why am I talking about this? Because God wants us to understand the authority that He has invested in the ecclesia. When we come together on Sunday mornings, something happens in the Spirit. The body of Christ has been convened. There is a legislative body of people that have been infused with authority. But if we're clueless about that, we're down here thinking we're singing songs to make Him feel good. God is very secure in who He is. He already knows He's awesome. He doesn't need you to tell Him that to settle some insecurity. Like, wow, I was was feeling pretty secure after last week because that was a really good worship set you guys had. But man, by Wednesday, I was feeling a little insecure. And by Saturday night, man, I'm really looking forward to Sunday so you could validate me again. That's not the God we serve. We need to tell Him that for our sake. But we also need to tell Him that for the sake of this region and the people sitting next to us. Because when we convene, what we're doing is we are bringing in the throne of our King. We're marching it in in worship. We're setting it down because God will inhabit or enthrone Himself in the praise of His people. And we're convening His presence, knowing that when two or three, and there's a few more than that here this morning, that we have convened King Jesus. And from that place, we begin to make declarations. We have revelation. Justin came down with the revelation. It's very scriptural. 1 Corinthians 14 says, one will have a revelation, and they share it. One has a word, and they share that. Those revelations are then to move us into legislation, where we begin to make these declarations, we begin to pray, we begin to release the authority of heaven, because God has revealed to us what He wants us to release His power on. But it needs to go a step further. It's not just theoretical declaration. There's real life implementation when we leave this place. Because the kingdom of heaven needs to land. And in order for that to happen, it's got to get beyond us thinking inside the walls of this building. This is just an equipping center. I thank God for it. It's a building that we can have air conditioning in. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I could go into worship right there. But that's all it is. When you and I gather together in any form or fashion, the ecclesia, and there is an, there's a dimension of authority that moves into the room, and we can move things. But you've got to believe it in order to operate in it. You are the assembly of God. You are the... Uh, we are Heartland Assembly. We, we are Heartland Church, the ecclesia And we can legislate things. And you need to understand the authority given to you. But there's an authority given to you. We've talked about authority. There's, go ahead and stand so you know I'm going to stop. There's authority of a believer that you get. There's authority in creation. We abdicate it through the fall. There's the authority of the believer. We get back in Christ. There's positional authority with responsibility. But there's the, the ultimate big kahuna authority 
in the New Testament is when the body of Christ convenes as the ecclesia of God. We can move things. So what Justin said this morning, there's stubborn things that wouldn't move. A big part of getting them to move is just that awareness. Hey, the body of Christ is in session. Now let's begin to, let's begin to release the, the power of the kingdom on this thing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, just raise your hands before the Lord. Father, we thank you. God, we receive the identity. Not just individually, who you say we are. But Father, we receive the identity that we are the legislative body of believers. We are the ecclesia, the legislative body of heaven. And that we can move things through revelation and legislation in intercession. Lord, that we are called to establish your claim on earth. We thank you for it. Father, I thank you. You sent your son to establish his kingdom. And Jesus, you told us, occupy till I come. That is not a passive thing. We're not in defense mode. We are taking ground. We're a military occupation as the body of Christ. Lord, help us to walk in that. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Wednesday night, Ephesians chapter 1. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.